Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. If there was one thing that I could pick that would determine whether or not you can reach peak performance, and this is, you know, after being to three Olympics as a, as a media person and working with a couple hundred Olympians and, you know, dozen expeditions around the world to do pretty crazy stuff. The one thing that I would say determines your success or failure in a critical moment of performance is whether or not you're focused. If you are on task, if you have no distractions, if you are doing what needs to be doing and that what you're doing is related to the performance itself, you're going to be fine. I've seen so many people go to the Olympic Games, for example, and get really into the crowds and really into the media and doing the interviews and going to the, the sponsor events and, and taking it all in. And you know what? That's totally fine if you want to do that. But it's pretty universal that the people that do that end up performing really poorly. And the people that go in, <clears throat> kind of hibernate, go to their hotel rooms, totally focus on the performance, basically go do practice, then go do massage, then go have a nap, then go get some food, then go to bed and completely ignore everything that is not directly related to the performance itself. Those are the ones that do well or at least reach their potential. And uh, believe it or not, very few people go to the Olympics and go a lifetime best performance. It's so difficult. It's such a hard environment to perform in that really, you know, if you get anywhere near your lifetime best, you're probably in, in play for something really good to happen. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Greg, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's so fun. I'm I'm so excited to be here. This is great. Yeah, you know, I came across you uh, and your story by way of our mutual friend, Philip McKernan. And given what a hit he has been um, with our audience, I figured anybody that he would send our way had to be absolutely amazing. So no pressure at all. Uh, no pressure. Uh, but, <clears throat> yeah. You know, Knowing that, you know, your work is, you know, sort of a combination of psychology, peak performance science and social science, um, I thought, you know, the question I'd like to start with is what social group were you a part of in high school and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Wow, that's funny. It's funny you mentioned that I'm a psychologist and a sociologist because I actually think of myself as a physiologist and that means I study the body, not the mind, mm -hmm. which is psychology. And so it's, it's, it's so interesting because once I actually gave a talk on something like, and then people afterwards were like, hey, I loved your talk on mental health. And I was like, I thought I was talking about nutrition, but whatever. <laughs> so it's funny that how that all gets wrapped up. So what social group was I a part of? Um, you know, I was very much an athlete when I was a, a kid. And that saved me because before that, I was very much a quite a nerd and a, and a little bit of a geek. So uh, I became a swimmer and, um, and then, you know, developed a good group of friends around that. And I was very fortunate also to have an amazing group of friends at school. So I kind of had two groups of friends. And when 
I you know when things weren't going well with one group, I always had the other group and could you know jump back and forth, and uh, so that was that was good. But I was definitely you know in the in the sports crowd and not like the football group, but sort of the you know the athletes and in the high school I was at, there were some hockey players and rugby players and soccer players and stuff like that. So that and a lot of squash players. So that went really well. And how did that affect where I ended up? You know, it's interesting because when I was swimming, I was train I was training obviously a lot, and I went to a a training camp in Florida when I was 15 and we were playing in the waves before we had a swim meet and a big wave picked me up and dropped me on my head and I broke my neck in a whole bunch of different places and then went through, you know, um, immobilized in a halo brace and then a whole bunch of uh, neurosurgery and then rehab and a bunch of other stuff after that to get back to being, uh, you know, a hundred percent or at least 95% or whatever and went back into swimming eventually and, I ended up having a decent swimming career. Uh, but that that moment when I broke my neck really set the stage for a deep interest in the human body and how it works. That subsequently kind of led to me doing kinesiology in university and uh, ultimately ended up in doing research into uh, med- into medicine and, and respiratory physiology and how we can use exercise to help people with chronic diseases. So it's funny, back at 15, and this huge accident really ended up setting the stage for pretty much everything that has happened since, sort of from a career perspective, but also from like a mental perspective, like how do you approach things? Mm-hmm. You know, I, when I had neurosurgery, the, the, the lady, that uh, the incredible and wonderful and genius, skilled um, woman who did my did the operation, uh, you know, she said, you know, Greg, you're, you're not going to swim ever again. And in my head, immediately, I was like, okay, you know, um, I said a bunch of stuff in my head. I'm not going to repeat publicly, but it was basically a, you know, F you. And uh, 14 months later, I sent her a picture of me swimming at Olympic trials. So, which ended up on the wall in the operating room, apparently, or in the recovery room. So that, that set the stage, not just for career, but also just for like overcoming obstacles and this psychology that I seem to have adopted ever since that, yeah, I mean, we all go through pretty crazy stuff in life and bad stuff happens, but the way that you approach it and the way that you deal with it really determines the outcome. And that really helped me to see that I can do pretty much anything um, afterwards that, you know, whenever these obstacles sort of present themselves. Hmm. Wow. So many questions come from uh, from that. First, you know, uh, first question is really about teams and what you learned about working with other people as a result of being on teams in high school. You know, like I, I look back at high school and I, I think one of the regrets I have is that I never played any team sports, mainly because I was, you know, I didn't have an athletic bone in my body at the time. And me, to me, team sports were an opportunity to be continually the worst player on the team, um, which is why I gravitated towards board sports uh, when I got older. But um, I'm curious, you know, what are the lessons in working with teams that you learned from being, you know, on a high school swim team that you ended up applying uh, in your life and your career? Wow, that's, that's an interesting one. You know, in high school, I'm not sure that there was, you know, swimming is a very individual sport, but you're constantly surrounded by people that support you. And, you know, one story that sort of kind of pops into my head is, you know, when I was coming back from the broken neck and started, started getting back in the pool again, and started training, I was back with my group and you you go up and down the pool and at one point I said, I've just paused and was resting at, at one of the ends and someone, one of the Olympians in the group came through and did a flip turn, which is when your feet come over and they hit the wall. And he very deliberately did a flip turn like on me and like kind of smashed his feet into me and came up and he goes, don't stop. And so there was like this zero tolerance for weakness and like 
they're like, I know you're tired. I know that you're hurt. I know that you're injured, but like, don't stop. It's not acceptable. The team is moving on and you're coming with us. And he said it in a very challenging way, but a very kind of cool way at the same time. I'm like, all right, you know, let's, let's go. And so I started swimming again and knew that pausing if you got tired wasn't an option. So there was that kind of cool um, psychology that you need people around you because it's not, you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And, and when things are going well, you don't really need help. It's when things are not going well that you need help. And surrounding yourself with the people that you need to move you forwards is uh, is so important. I've sort of very deliberately over the last few years um, tried to surround myself with people that I can learn from, that I can, you know, not just take from, but also to help too. So like going for dinners, long, good dinners with people that are experts in a certain field that I want to learn about. And then hopefully they want to learn about what I'm doing. We have this incredible exchange of information. And just by surrounding myself with people that are better than me and that I can learn from and that can push me and that can challenge me and that are going to really drive drive things has made a huge difference. And that sort of began in high school with training with people that are better than me. And definitely that was the case in university where I, I went and swam on a team with, I think, eight people made the Olympic team. Um, and one of them won the Olympics. And, uh, you know, that definitely has sort of caught on. And I've tried to stick with that ever since. And, and uh, you know, I love working at the hospital for sick children as a researcher because when I'm there, Every single conversation that I have is a little bit hard to understand because the people there are so smart that you're just constantly challenged with every single thing that you do, say, think, listen to. Quite often I'll have a conversation and be taking notes and have to go back to my lab or my office afterwards and look up what I was talking about because I actually didn't understand most of what was going on. Um, and that's just how you learn. That's how you grow. That's how you continue to change. So I'm, that's sort of like a, a philosophy that kind of got hammered into me when I was 16, and um, I've tried to stick with ever since. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, like I look at sort of the various chapters of my life, and I can almost like directly correlate the level of, of significance, achievement, success, and fulfillment to the people that are in my life. Um, you know, who who are dom- who have a dominant presence in my life. Yeah, there's no question. And, you know, we have so many opportunities to pick and choose the people that we spend time with. And I think that quite often we feel that many people might perceive that that's just, you know, I'm just surrounded by who I'm surrounded by. But if we're deliberate about it, if we very consciously think about, okay, so who's making me better? Who's positive? Who's a positive influence on my life and go deliberately in that direction? Incredible things can happen. Last year, in October, I took my grad students to um, climb a mountain in Ecuador, and uh, another doctor at SickKids, the hospital where I work, uh, a German fellow, asked me, he said, Andreas Schultz, he's like, Greg, we're going to climb Chimborazo in Ecuador with some of my friends from Europe. He's like, you want to come along? I was like, yeah, absolutely, I want to come along. And then I asked my my grad students who've been kind of bugging me to go do an expedition because we're physiologists. We kind of study extreme human physiology. They're like, and I was like, look, we're going, you want to come? And they're like, absolutely. So we all went and really pushed the limits. And Chimborazo is an amazing uh, volcano. It's actually the, because it's at the equator, it's the farthest point from the center of the earth. It's actually two kilometers farther from the center of the earth than Everest is because of the equatorial bulge. The earth is not a circle. It's actually an oval. So it's, it's, we, we had the opportunity to climb Chimborazo and be the closest people to the stars. Like I thought that was kind of neat. And 
you know, as we set out from base camp to do the climb, and it was going to be somewhere 12 to 14 hours of climbing to get up to the top, and we left at 11 at night because we needed to climb at night because of the ice conditions and other stuff like that. Um, you know, the fact that you were surrounded by people that you trusted, the fact that I was surrounded by, um, you know, another doctor that, that was just, you know, incredibly skilled, but also very tough mentally, that the German group that had good climbing experience that, you know, the two friends, uh, and then my two grad students who were both, uh, you know, in their, in their twenties and late sort of late twenties, early thirties and, you know, brilliant people. And, you know, Jillian and Sarah, my two grad students just absolutely crushed it, ended up being the only two to make it to the summit. Um, and did so sort of after the rest of us hit our absolute complete limits, but it was that group, the trust between us, the, the pushing each other, the, the, the pairs that ended up creating themselves as we went up the mountain, the trust in your guides, you know, if any one of those things doesn't work, then you have absolutely no chance of getting to wherever you got on the mountain. I mean, it was so hard that, you know, you ended up getting to a certain place and realizing that <laughs> you, know, you take another 10 steps and your likelihood of making it down is not good. So you, you definitely reach your potent, your potential and your, and your limits, but it's the group around you that enables you to do that. If I didn't have a functional group, if we didn't have good friends, if I didn't have people that I trusted, if we didn't have the expertise of the guys, like none of that happens. And it's a perfect metaphor for our lives and anything that we're trying to do, run a 5K, lose a few pounds, build a new business, be a good parent, like anything. It's all the same. You need incredible people around you that are going to make you better. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I love this. This is just such good stuff. Uh, you know, one of the other things that you mentioned was that this accident had sort of set the stage for your career. And, you know, what I'm really curious about is what your your work and your research has shown about the psychology of overcoming obstacles. And, and you know, what enables somebody to not only overcome an obstacle, but achieve performance at the level that you did? Like, what mentally does that take? Yeah, I've been really interested in studying overcoming obstacles recently, and there's a um, a theory that has been circulating that I'm very, very interested in, and it's called post-traumatic growth. And so when things happen to people that are bad, let's say a trauma of some kind, and that can be, let's say it's a police officer who witnessed something, or a soldier that had a had a certain experience, or you know, a woman who's been attacked or something along those lines, there is obviously um, some significant trauma that that has occurred. And there are sort of two options that happen after that. And appears that people go on one of two trajectories. Either they go down, in which case it's a traumatic experience and there's stress, so post-traumatic stress disorder, and they have anxiety attacks and panic attacks and, and mental health challenges, the other thing that seems to happen to people is explosive growth. So if you think about, you know, someone has a heart attack, when is it most likely that they're going to get their life together and start training for that marathon? Probably after the heart attack. If they, you know, have gone through a particularly difficult divorce, then that's when they rediscover who they are and go off and find who they really are supposed to be and build that business and and become the individual that, that they always had the potential of being. And so I'm interested, what's the inflection? What's the difference between trauma, traumatic stress, and traumatic growth? Because I definitely, when I was um, coming back from that stressful, horrific, you know, event, 
uh, it was definitely a growth opportunity for me. I, I improved. All of my mental skills improved. My physiology improved. Everything went in the right direction. Um, and the, the thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again from what I've been reading and studying is challenge. It appears that when there is a challenge that we can, that we can perceive, if we can shift our thinking from the event being a threat to the event being a challenge, then all of a sudden our mindset changes, our physiology changes, and we're able to overcome things. So to give you an example of this, a few years ago, my daughter got the flu, the H1N1 and the, and the flu virus went back through her the nerve that connects her nose to her brain, uh, infected the brain very, very badly. She ended up having a series of seizures and a whole bunch of other horrific stuff. And in that moment, when we're sitting in the hospital with Ingrid and she's, you know, in a complete mess and you're, as a parent, you know, you're freaking out to the nth degree. Our, our thought was, okay, well, we know we can perceive this as a threat and clearly it is a threat, but right now this is a challenge that we need to overcome. And what are we going to do to get Ingrid back to being healthy again? We very deliberately went through a series of things to help to rebuild her physiology and to minimize the impact of that particular uh, condition on on her. And uh, she ended up coming out of it really well over the course of a couple of years. Actually, it's been maybe a little bit longer than that, but um, you know, we're still working on a few things to try to fix them up. But it's that mindset and it's the shift from threat to challenge that I think is incredibly powerful for people that can really help them to overcome those obstacles or at least approach things in a positive way that gives them a chance of, of overcoming those obstacles. Wow. Um, so one of the things that I'm curious about, you know, I think often we look at our obstacles and it's a very easy to recognize the value of those obstacles only in retrospect, right? So at the moment that it happens, you're kind of like, this sucks. Like the world just went to hell in a handbag. Uh, and I, I, this is really fresh on my mind right now because I was writing about it because I thought to myself, you know, one of the thoughts I had this morning is the ability to separate uh, the meaning we assign to something from the actual event that took place is essential to controlling our reality and shaping our reality. Uh, but I'm curious, you know, for the most part, we only recognize this in retrospect. And I'm curious what you think is, is possible that ma- makes what makes it possible to not recognize it just in retrospect, but in the moment that it happens. You know, what? in the moment that it happens, it's just awful. It's hell. It's uh, and whatever it happens to be, like it's not fun. It's not pleasant, and it's not supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Life doesn't have to be always good. Hopefully, it's not too bad. Like you don't want the worst of the worst, right? Like, sure. <clears throat> um, a friend or say your girlfriend passes away, or a family member passes away, or you lose your mom or dad, or you lose a child, right? Like that's like that's a a, a nightmare of such epic proportions that you may. It's just incomprehensible but still let's say that there's an injury let's say that there's an illness let's say that there's a you've lost your job or you know something something's happened at work that poses a that could destroy everything that you've been working on for the last five years or something along those lines right like how do you actually deal with that in the moment and i think part of it has to do with just simply acknowledging the 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 situation naming the situation describing the situation and then very deliberately crafting a course of action so you've just got to do something to move forwards and at any given moment what you what i've always found really helps is okay what's the best possible outcome what do i need to try to shoot towards and writing it down i've actually got this big huge sheet of paper this art paper that i've used on many occasions just to freeform sketch out optimal outcomes and 
that takes you from being in the moment where things are collapsing all around you and helps you see what needs to happen. And when you see what needs to happen, it becomes very, very clear what you need to do and what you don't, what you shouldn't do and where you should focus your energies. And very specifically, here's another really important thing is what you can control versus what you can't control. And if you can control something, you go all in on that. If you can't control something, then you need to let that go. And far too many people, I think, when they're, they're in these situations, think about the fact and think about too much what is sort of beyond your control. Let's take my broken neck, for example. Bro- neck is broken. I'm lying in the hospital. Can I control the fact that my neck is broken? Absolutely not. I'm, am I a little bit angry that you know I did something stupid yesterday? Yeah, but it's irrelevant. What's the optimal outcome? I can get back to swimming again. Okay, so what do I need to do in order to make that happen? Mm-hmm. Right, and it's that sort of level, sort of that thinking, shifting ourselves out of ruminating about the bad stuff into action planning for the good things that need to happen. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal. 
growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, you know, you've mentioned uh, this idea of extreme physiology, which seems like is really sort of the core of what your work has all been about um, and, you know, using physiology to improve performance. So I, I'm curious how, you know, and this will probably be the, the rest of our conversation, I'd imagine, just based on everything you've told me so far. How do you take, you know, extreme physiology and um, use that to amplify, amplify performance, not just physically, but also mentally? Yeah, I love learning from the extremes. So what I do is I spend half of my time studying elite athletes and doing extreme things like cycling across Africa or climbing mountains or going with my buddy who ran across South America at one point and studying those sorts of extreme physical and mental accomplishments. And then the other half is spent at, at the hospital for sick children, studying children with chronic illnesses and cancer and cystic fibrosis and other things but it's super interesting that even though we're talking about the extremes and studying the extremes that we can learn from them and apply those to our everyday life so for example there was a young woman from canada uh joanie rochette and she's she was competing in the 2010 olympics and it was she was competing in figure skating just a few days after her mom passed away and it's an extreme situation your mom just passed away you step out on the ice 10,000 people cheer you. There's millions of people watching you on television. Your entire career has come down to this one moment. You're incredibly emotional, fragile emotionally. And she lost a little bit of control and became hyper-emotional. And she actually stopped and went back to her coach and spoke to her coach and took some deep breaths and calmed herself down and very deliberately used a breathing technique, you know, three long, slow, deep breaths to get control of her body, to get control of her mind, and then she went out onto the ice and skated the performance of a lifetime and ended up winning a medal. And I love using that example because it shows very clearly you've got, you know, this person competing at the Olympics, but using three long, slow, deep breaths just to sort of calm herself right down and to relax back into her, her ideal performance state. That applies to all of us because let's say you're doing a presentation at work. Let's say that you're walking into an exam. Let's say that you're about to have a difficult discussion with your spouse. It's very easy to get too nervous, too stressed, too anxious, and too tense. And it's very rare that any of us perform well at whatever it is that we're trying to do if we're tense. We've got to keep ourselves energetic but relaxed and that really is the magic there. We can learn so much from the extremes, pull it back to apply that information to ourselves to help us do better at the things that happen in our day-to-day lives that are challenging. And that's, I think, the thing that separates the, the average from the exceptional. I think most people just sort of stumble through their day-to-day requirements and don't really deliberately try to execute and try to be world-class. And world-class, I mean, for me, that's anything, right? Like for... World class for a cancer patient is getting up out of bed and going to the bathroom by yourself and getting back into bed. Like that's a world class performance for for an Olympian. That's breaking a world record. So I don't care where you are on that spectrum. It's just like how do you push it? How do you be a little bit better? How do you deliberately try to reach your potential and get one percent better every single time? We talk about extremes, but really it's about 
on any given day, can you improve by 1%? What are you going to do to make that happen? So are you going to book a yoga class? Are you going to make sure you go to a massage once a week? Are you going to challenge yourself to start doing more strength training? Are you going to shift towards more vegetables in your diet? Like whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, but that's the magic. That's what we need to all learn. And that's, that's how we, that's what we do when we talk about extreme human physiology is study the limits and then pull that back to help all of us. Okay. So, so many questions come from this. I, I love this. this <laughs> Sorry, is, uh, I was all over, I that, all over the place. On well, no, that was, anyway, that was amazing. Like there's so much, all so right. much interesting stuff there. So I have a ton of questions about it. Um, so, you know, we've looked at it through the lens of something very physical, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, how you take that and how you would apply it to something, you know, cognitively demanding, like creative work, like writing or computer programming or whatever that might be. Like, how can you apply these same principles? And then I'm curious, you know, from just a, an overall brain science perspective, what is happening? happening in the brain when we use extreme physiology to achieve these states of peak performance? I would say that, you know, there, there was one thing that I could pick that would determine whether or not you can reach peak performance. And this is, you know, after being to three Olympics as a, as a media person and working with a couple hundred Olympians and, you know, dozen expeditions around the world to do pretty crazy stuff. The one thing that I would say determines your success or failure in a critical moment of performance is whether or not you're focused. If you are on task, if you have no distractions, if you are doing what needs to be doing and that what you're doing is related to the performance itself, you're going to be fine. I've seen so many people go to the Olympic Games, for example, and get really into the crowds and really into the media and doing the interviews and going to the, the sponsor events and and taking it all in, and you know what, that's totally fine if you want to do that, but it's pretty universal that the people that do that end up performing really poorly. And the people that go in, <clears throat> kind of hibernate, go to their hotel rooms, totally focus on the performance, basically go do practice, then go do massage, then go have a nap, then go get some food, then go to bed, and completely ignore everything that is not directly related to the performance itself. Those are the ones that do well, or at least reach their potential, and uh, believe it or not, very few people go to the Olympics and go a lifetime best performance. It's so difficult. It's such a hard environment to perform in that really, you know, if you get anywhere near your lifetime best, you're probably in in play for something really good to happen. Mm -hmm. So focus is, for me, the number one thing for um, people to to deal with or to try to do in our world these days. So how does that apply to our daily lives? So an example would be this summer I had to write a book because I'd had it on my desk for like a year and it wasn't, I wasn't making progress and I needed to just finish it. And I really wanted to get it done. So I took July and August and said, okay, no meetings, no public speaking events. Um, nothing like nothing goes on the schedule. And I told my EA, I'm like, you know what? We have to just push everything off. And anyone that has a meeting request, just say, look, we'll talk to you in September. I'm sorry, Greg's got to focus and write his book. And so what I would do is wake up at, at five 30, walk down to go for a swim. My buddies of mine and I rented a, rented a pool and go for a swim in the morning, came back, had a cup of coffee, came upstairs and sat down and wrote my book from eight to eight to one every day, which I know my sweet spot for mental performance and, and creativity. And I would take the afternoon to go do something that would bring my brain back to life. So I'd either read something else or go for a bike ride or or go do something. And I repeated that pretty much every single day for two months and crushed it and managed to get the book out the door uh, right before, right before Labor Day. So building those systems, 
building focus. Oh, by the way, during that time that I was writing eight to one, like no email, no phone calls, no social media, not like everything was turned off. So I could just go into this, you know, circle of total, complete and utter non, the opposite of distraction, like bubble of focus. So we can take that and apply that to our own lives. If you're not, you know, if you don't have the ability to sort of disappear for two months, like I did, an application of that is what the guys at LinkedIn did recently, the leadership team at LinkedIn. They, the president asked the leadership team to take one to two hours every single morning, no distractions, no meetings, uh, no social, nothing, to strategically plan the future of the company. And they did that for a couple of months and led to, I believe, led to a number of decisions and projects and actions that led to them being taken over or being sold to Microsoft. So you can go sort of from a macro perspective, a couple months down to a micro perspective of an hour a day and use that principle of high performance focus to get yourself into whatever zone you need to get to to get the most important thing in your life done at the best time of day for you in a way with absolutely no distractions. And if you can do that consistently, unbelievable things happen. You know, being in the middle of a second manuscript myself right now, um, I, I can totally relate. And, you know, it's one of those things that I've, I've actually struggled the second time around more than I did the first time, which I, I thought has been very unusual. Um, you know, Same thing happened to me. My first book was no problem. Second book was like pulling teeth. Yeah. It was so hard. And that's why I had to go into lockdown. And as soon as I got into lockdown, I'm like, all right, here we go. And just built a system around it. It became all of a sudden like this incredible momentum that was unstoppable so yeah no the second book was way harder than the first yeah it's interesting because i i was recently forced to be uh without internet access or uh, or cellular access for about two or three days i was volunteering for a nonprofit, um and there was no internet access at the place that i was at and i was kind of amazed at you know coming back after two days sitting down at the computer how much easier it was to write when i had had no internet or cell access for you know three almost three days straight totally and one of the things I, say, I, I ask people to do is one weekend a month, turn off your phone, turn off your computer, and don't check your email. Mm-hmm. And like, just give yourself from Friday until Monday morning, don't check anything. And watch your brain come back to life. It's another reason why I think we need to go away, if you can, to places without internet. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we were in Ecuador climbing that mountain, there was seven days where I couldn't check my email. And you know, after two or three days, it was like, a little bit hard, but then by the end, I was like, you know what? I don't want to check my email anymore. But interestingly, when I got back to the hotel and I did check my email, I had about 700 of them, mm-hmm. but it only took me about 90 minutes to clear the entire thing out. And which kind of begs the question, why am I spending so much time on it every single day when it could be blocked and contained? <laughs> and the reality is that no one really notices if you're, well, very few people notice if you're answering like right now yeah. or if you answer at the end of the day. So I think it's one of the you know easiest things for people to put some discipline around and get, get control of their lives again. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I remember Stephen Kotler, when we had him here, he said, you know, top executives in flow are 500% more productive than average. And he said, so if your you know, company policy is that you need to respond to an email within two minutes, you're hosed. I can't even imagine that. But that's what everyone tries to do. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we end up jumping from task to task to task and never really getting into a state of flow and the re- and the research is very clear that in order to get into a state of flow, the fundamental prerequisite is, is focus. And if you're being distracted constantly, there's no chance of you entering or staying in a state of flow. And 
Imagine if you get a 500% increase in your performance for two to three hours a day, every single day of the week, Hmm. like your life would totally change. So we can do that. We just have to put some discipline around it, some systems, break some habits and, um, you know, and, and help other people around us understand what we're doing so that, that they can maybe take advantage of that opportunity as well. So, you know, I have a question about sort of, um, what is happening in the brain when we're experiencing sort of extreme physiology, you know, like being a, an avid surfer and a snowboarder, those are my absolute pathways to flow. Like I know with a hundred percent certainty, I'm kind of like, if I go out and spend a day on the mountain, I will come back the next day and be able to write like I've never been able to write before. Like it will be my superpower for the week if I get in a good surf session or a good snowboarding session. So you know, you've studied extreme sport athletes. Um, and I, I'm curious, what is happening in the brain when you're experiencing extreme physiology that leads to all these breakthroughs? It's not interesting. We're still studying that and and trying to figure that out. But the one area that appears to be very closely involved in all of this is called the inferior frontal cortex, sort of at the front of the brain and low down, sort of like right in between your eyebrows, back about an inch. And that area is critical for deciding what to do with the information that's coming in. And it appears that when we're in a flow state, when we're in a very, very focused state, that the inferior frontal cortex is active in helping to sort of keep things controlled and to decide what information we focus on and what information we don't focus on. And it appears that meditation increases the density of tissue in that area of, of the brain. So it's a very interesting part of the brain for us to work on. And then another sort of interesting thing that I think uh, we're learning a lot about is task switching. And if, when we jump from task to task to task, there's very been identified that there's a task switching cost associated with that that takes time mm-hmm. to sort of ramp up and engage and then you know sort of ramp up to another area and we're moving back and forth between tasks it does cost time how much time that is is you know estimates from milliseconds up to 15 minutes so we're not really sure um, but there's definitely a bunch of interesting things happening when we're um, when we're in that state but you know, if people are trying to figure out, so how do I train myself to get in there? And you do it through muscular meditation, like surfing and and snowboarding, which is you know phenomenal. And cycling is very very good for um, paddleboarding, um, running, spe- anything where you're in nature, especially, seems to be incredibly powerful for that. I actually, call that muscular meditation. And then you time you're doing something rhythmic in nature. Uh, it seems to be incredible for helping the brain, but meditation is another inc- very, very powerful tool for improving our ability to focus, stay focused. And um, when I when I do meditation at the beginning of the day, I have a very different day than the days when I when I forget or I don't do it. So it's it's another tool for people to try to try to tackle. Yeah, I, you know, I've I've found the same to, uh, to be the case with meditation, and you know, it's funny. I've I've had so many people here lately talk about. Um, benefits of meditation that go far beyond the mental ones. Like we just had Gay Hendricks here, um, the author of, of uh, The Big Leap, and he was talking about the zone of genius. And he said, you know, 10 minutes every day of meditation has led to his selling of companies, two public companies in his entrepreneurial life. And you're like, wow, there's a financial ROI on meditation. Who would have guessed? Uh, you know, and then I remember Todd Henry said, you know, Ray Dalio, the guy who was the, the you know, principal at, at Bridgewater Capital, which is a, a massive hedge fund, apparently, uh, also abides by a meditation habit because it allows him to navigate the uh, uncertainties of the market without getting you know emotional about it. Yeah, I've been doing you know since the summer and, and very very consistently uh, about twenty minutes, it, ideally in the morning, and if I have to 
later at night. And there's no question that it's just allowed me to really notice when my mind is wandering and to recenter. But more importantly, it's allowed me to really recognize when I'm ruminating about things that that don't actually exist. If I'm thinking about something that's happened in the past, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, and you're getting all like wound up about it. You're like, no, it doesn't even exist. And so you instantaneously can drop it and can get back on task. And it's also dangerous because one of the main reasons why dangerous because one of the main reasons why we get anxious is we're imagining the future, which which in reality also doesn't exist. So we're sort of winding ourselves up about the past or the future and it allows us to I believe meditation allows you to sort of drop that, get back to the moment, so you can actually act the way that you need to, so that you can think the way that you need to, so you can have the emotional state that you need to, sort of act, think, feel yourself into this funnel of doing what it is that you need to be doing. And that might be nothing, right? In some cases, doing nothing is the best option, mm-hmm. right through to actually you know, writing a book or coming up with a solution to a problem or researching the right stock or presenting uh, to a group of people or writing an exam or a test. So it's, it's just this incredibly powerful tool that, need, that if we can practice it regularly, I think really unlocks our potential mentally and, and solves so many of the problems that we've been talking about for the last little while. Yeah, you know, I, I think the the emphasis on doing nothing is a, a really interesting one because you know Gay Hendricks even talked about that as well. And you know, the idea of doing nothing is so troubling to most of us because we're used to constantly like doing something. Uh, you know, like you're fiddling with your phone, even if you're just sitting around. And what's funny is that when we do that, I started to realize this after you know reading this book called Make Your Brain Smarter that was created uh, written by the people at the, the Center for Brain Health uh, at University of Texas Dallas. You know, I thought, you know, when we try to do nothing, we actually fail at doing nothing because we'll attempt to do nothing like or we'll attempt to do something like go for a walk. And then we text the entire time or take, you know, Instagram (laughs) pictures the entire time, which, you know, effectively what that does is if this is a a period in which you're, you know, looking at renewal and recovery cognitively, you just undo all the good stuff that could come from that because you're basically not doing nothing, even though you should be doing nothing. Totally. Like go for a walk. And don't bring your phone. Like, <laughs> super simple. Just go for a walk. Yeah. Another thing I've been doing, I've got a six-year-old, and with her, sometimes she goes, Daddy, I'm bored. Like, outstanding. Like, let's be bored. And when she's bored, you notice that she kind of sits there, and then she eventually sort of goes and starts being hyper-creative. She'll go and start drawing, right, instead of um, – engaging in something that she was doing before like creativity for her seems to come out of this boredom state and the ability to sit and and do nothing and just breathe and just to exist i believe also has this other really cool effect of enabling you to get back to being happy there's some really interesting theory that the base state of of the way that we are as humans is actually just to be happy. And it's our thoughts, it's our actions, it's the things that we layer on top of it that stop us from being happy. And when you get into meditation, when you start to let things go, when you start to calm the mind, when you start to uh, allow yourself to deeply relax and just to stop and to slow down, you notice that happiness starts to bubble up to the surface. And you're like, you can actually just start killing yourself laughing which happened uh to me recently and in, in march actually i'm going to india to uh hang out with a, a friend of mine and and explore that 
in a little bit more detail because I'm not interested in it. Um, so yeah, some amazing things there. Like if you've got kids, let, let them be bored. It's okay for them to be bored. Watch what happens when they're bored. Watch how creative they get. Um, for you, anyone listening, if, and just experiment with putting everything away and just go do go for a walk for an hour. Go to the gym with no um, with no music. Uh, like you know, just take a bath and allow yourself just to be allow that heat to penetrate into your muscles and let your muscles get get really really relaxed. So, lots of really interesting ways of trying to do that. And the first couple times will be a total train wreck. Like your mind will be racing and you won't know what to do. Then after a while, you might be like, Hey, look, that tree is beautiful. Or let's look at the waves crashing there. I'm just going to hang out here and look at that for a while. I was in, in Sydney last week in Australia and did this hike up near Bondi Beach. And there was this incredible cliff. And you can go sit at the top of the cliff. And I you know, hiked up there and sat there for a good 45 minutes. And you know, loads of people walked by. And I was like, you guys are missing the most incredible scene I've, I've looked at in, in years. So when you slow down and you start to take things in a little bit more deeply, it's amazing how life takes on a different scale basically. And you can, you can really start to appreciate things and, and enjoy life a lot more too. So not to take away from the fact, you know, we need to crush it sometimes to Mm -hmm. really rock our businesses. But at the same time, we need to take a step back and just look around you. It's amazing things to see and amazing things to, to take in. So, you know, knowing all of this, um, it, you know, and the fact that we all have access to, you know, probably more information than anybody has ever had in history about, you know, improvements in human performance, improvements in ability. Why do we see the variability that we do in people's results? Yeah, I think the thing that we need to remember there is that we each have our own unique genetics. Uh, if we take that back to exercise, for example, there's sort of two fundamental genetic components that determine our different responses to training let's say you have two people and they both do the same exercise program for six months they'll both end up at very different levels of fitness and that's because we have a gene that controls how trainable we are how do we respond to training some people respond very very fast other people respond very very slowly i'm super fortunate in that i'm pretty sure i have a gene that allows me to respond very quickly if i train regularly i get fit pretty fast Mm -hmm. on the other hand there's another gene that codes for your set point if you do nothing, how fit you are. And I'm unfortunately one of those people that if I do nothing, I get really out of shape and I get like I'm terrible. I've got buddies who do nothing and they're awesome. So, which drives me completely <laughs> mental. But um, point being is that you, you might be very fortunate. You don't have to do much and you're relatively fit. You know, you're, you're very, very fortunate. But for the vast majority of us, we, we're not like that. So we need to just understand that you are your own person. You respond your own way. You are going to respond differently than everyone else. And the magic is consistency. It doesn't matter how much progress you're making as long as you're moving forwards 1% every day. And it's sort of like compound interest for your body and mind. You know, if you, if you put $20 into your bank account and into a, into a savings account, and you let that money compound over time, you'll be a millionaire. Um, if you try to do it all at the end, or you, you, it's not going to happen. So if you can in- invest as a kid, you're going to be super wealthy. If you try to invest as an 80-year-old, you're going to be, be able to save money for lunch. And the magic is is just that compounding of little tiny 1% gains. And if you add those up over time, you're going to end up in a very, very, very different place. So 
pick anything, pick, you know, increased vegetables, meditation, going for a walk, getting some exercise, smiling more, gratitude, journaling, waking up earlier, drinking more water, uh, and drink green tea instead of coffee, like anything along those lines, pick any of some thousands of things you can do, pick any of them, implement them for a while, watch what happens and then add the next one and off you go. Wow. Um, so this has been really, really fascinating. Uh, I am curious if there are any books in particular that have had a profound impact on your life and your work that you would recommend to our audience. <laughs> yeah, my, you know, I, I, one of the great things about podcasts is you get to talk to super incredible, fantastic people. I like love this opportunity for that reason. Um, but I got the chance on my podcast to interview a guy named Dan Millman who wrote The Monk Who Sold, uh, sorry, The Monk Who Sold, sorry, that's Robin Sharma, that's another one, but uh, Dan Millman wrote, wrote The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and that one I read when I was a teenager when I broke my neck, and it really set the stage for, because that, he talks about hurting himself when he was younger, and then his his return to competition afterwards, and ultimately uh, a long path of, of spiritual growth as well, so that's a, that's a huge one, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. From a business perspective, I think The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari by Robin Sharma is pretty amazing. Uh, Robin's become a pretty massive influence on my life. Those are two very, very big ones. Right now on my desk, I have two books. I've got Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, which is pretty good. And the one that is really blowing my mind at the moment is it is called A Day at El Bulli, E-L-B-U-L-L-I. And it's a book about a restaurant in Spain. And it's all about their creative process, and it's just totally awesome because you can see how it applies to absolutely everything. So that's a, those are a few big ones. And then if anyone's interested, my book comes out soon. It's called The Ripple Effect. It's coming out in April. Um, be amazing if anyone wanted to pick that one up because uh, that would be super cool too. Hmm. Wow. Well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Wow. I wish I'd known that you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Unmistakable. You know what, really, I just love when I'm around people and hanging out with them, I just love noticing people's energy. And, um, you know, I had the chance recently to hang out for a few days with a, with a guy from Colorado, uh, Dr. James Rouse. He's a naturopathic doctor. And, and the guy's energy is so off the charts. It's uh, You spend time with him and you just get happy. You just get energized. You just get excited he's got an incredible youtube channel if anyone wants to check him out like a little dose of dr james every morning is what everyone needs um so i would just say like your energy like ask yourself what energy are you putting out in the world like when you meet with people when you talk to them when you first meet like are you the first person to smile are you the first person to make eye contact are you the person that's going to stand and just sort of make other people around you better because that's that's for me seems to be the thing that just sort of makes me really notice people and really sort of gravitate towards people. And if you can be that person, you're going to have a huge impact in the world. Hmm. Well, this has been really, really amazing. Uh, I you know, can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights and uh, your story with our listeners. Where can they learn more about your work? My website's drgregwells.com. And that's the same for all my socials so at Dr. Greg Wells on Instagram and, uh, and Twitter, Dr. Greg Wells on Snapchat and uh, feel free to drop me a line. My podcast is on my website too. We've got some pretty awesome guests there. It's all focused around sort of transformation and growth and health and well-being. So if anyone wants to check out that, that would be totally fantastic. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's the mythos of a culture 
right? The cultural mythology that defines the values that we have. And so if you're hearing constantly stories about people overcoming adversity and taking on the challenges of life, then you're going to, I'd assume, be more likely to do that yourself. John Levy, founder of the Influencers Center and author of The 2AM Principle, returns to the show to talk about the science of adventure, connection, and community. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.